Uh, it's, it's crazy to think about the fact that on this planet currently there are 7.888 billion people alive. There's, there's a lot of people living on there at this time. There's been a lot of people that have lived on this earth. And yet we also have noticed that throughout history, there is the ability of one individual to have an impact on the rest of us for really forever. We think throughout history, we think of, of the people we learned about or we pretended to learn about in history class. We think of Julius Caesar. We think of uh, Isaac Newton. We think of uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin, whoever it is. Uh, there's all these individuals who we have noticed the discoveries or the power or the influence, the ideas they introduced into our world began and ushered in change for all the rest of us. And we get this because uh, even in your hands this morning, there's a printed Bible, right? Because a guy named Johannes Gutenberg designed this printing press, was able to start printing out uh, Bibles, really all kinds of literature led to not only the education increase of uh, the modern world, but also enabled everyone who wanted a Bible to have one. Right? Before that, only the priest or only the church had a Bible and enabled people to grow in faith. Then a few years ago, uh, you know, this guy named Steve Jobs came into the picture, and he was like, what if, like, everybody had a computer in their pocket at all times? Uh, what then? What would change? And so, you know, a lot of you that didn't bring your printed Bible, you're reading the Bible on your phone, right? Because Steve Jobs decided at Apple to create the iPhone, create the iPad. A lot of technological uh, innovation came through that, and it's really changed a lot about how we engage with this world, how social media has played an influence in our develop, bo development, both mentally and emotionally. Uh, we get this also because we believe, a lot of us, at the heart of our existence, that one person, that one person, can transform our lives forever. I don't know if you guys ever watched The Bachelor on ABC. Nobody? Good. <laughs> You're hiding. We know. We know who you are. Um, uh, my my wife forces me to watch it, um, and it is it's really cringy. I'll say that. And I but I do like the first episode because the first episode you have this single guy who uh, is really good at everything except love, and uh, which is a really important thing to be bad at. Um, and then put that guy in front of everybody uh, to display this inability, and they. Pair him with like 30 single women who uh, are all around the country, all in different phases of life, all different careers, and, and they come in and they're getting out the limo and they're meeting uh, this guy and they have these cringy intros and it's, you're just like, oh, this, uh, oh that's weird. Um, and, but in that moment, there's like this spark and you're looking for this spark, the chemistry between each one of them. And, and then they all go into the house and then the host comes up and and they always ask this one question, and the question is, do you think your future wife is in the house tonight? And he always is like, well, Jesse, I hope so. Uh, but in his eyes, you can see the hope, right? The hope that uh, all of his failure at love will now be redeemed by one person. And, you know, a lot of us here came to college, came to A&M, uh, single, single. And you realize, you know, A&M has like, I don't know, 80,000 people. And if you divide by two, that's 40,000 people that are of the opposite 
gender that, you know, potentially you could you know, end up with. Your chances are good here in College Station that you would find that person. So, you know, you start freshman year, you're going to Math 141, you're barely paying attention as you kind of search the room for that person. Uh, or maybe you're here at church right now and uh, you're looking for that person. Um, so, you know, we all believe that that one person really <clears throat> can change our life. Uh, put that together with what I said about history, it's, it's incredible that of all the people that live on this earth at this moment, how one person can affect everything. And as we continue in the book of Romans today, this letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Rome, what you get is 16 chapters of really dense material. And as we read Romans, it can be a, a source of frustration because it can be difficult to understand. In fact, the first 11 chapters really are all centered on some pretty heavy, dense theology. And then when you hit chapter 12, you finally get some, some commands, some how do you live uh, like a believer in this world, some direction and some action. And for 11 chapters, you're like, goodness, I, wow, how do I fit this in my brain? I don't know. Uh, and as we go into chapter 5 today, what we're going to see is Paul's going to describe two individuals. And he's going to say, these two guys had an impact on everyone else forever. Guy number one was Adam, the first man ever created, created by God, lived in the perfect existence, Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, and then Genesis 3, was tempted by the serpent, fell into sin, and that sin had an effect on all of us, continues to have an effect on all of us today. Guy number two, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, sent to earth, was tempted but lived a perfect life, went to the cross for our sins, died for those sins, and through him we are changed forever. And that gift of grace is offered to anybody who would receive it. And so in, in Romans 5, this back end of Romans 5, what Paul is going to describe as we work through this passage today is uh, he's going to look at each person, Adam, then Jesus, describe their action, and then describe the result that happens to the rest of humanity in this grand scheme of God's history of redemption for his people. And so it's going to be uh, an interesting passage. You might notice as we read through it, there really are no commands. There's no, hey, you should live your life this way. There's no uh, change your thoughts or thinking about this in this way. It's just straight up theology. And we love it. We love it. But what we're going to see as we, as we chart through this is it is going to be a little bit confusing. We're going to unpack that for you. But this is the framework we're going to work with this morning as we look at the individual, the action, the result. And so if you have a Bible, then you can turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, or I'll have it up for you on the screen if you didn't bring your Bible or iPhone, uh, but as we read through it, my hope today is we see in the history of redemption that the grace of God is so much more powerful than the devastation caused by sin, and that when we realize that in our own life, it starts to radically reorient our minds and our lives and our life trajectory to be focused and centered on God's will and not our own will. So we're going to jump into Romans 5, verse 12, and start here. 
So then, as just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all people because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But there is no accounting for sin when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who did not sin in the same way that Adam, who was a type of the one coming one, transgressed. And what he's going to start from the beginning right here is he's going to focus once again on the man, the action, the result. As we follow through, we notice he's talking about Adam, his one sin, his act of disobedience in the garden. In Genesis 3, God says, do not eat of that tree or you will surely die. He is tempted. He believes Satan, the serpent, and he disobeys. He goes against God's command. He introduces sin into this world, and with sin, the consequence, the penalty for sin is death. Now, when you think of death, when I think of death, we usually are talking about physical death, the separation of the body from the soul or the spirit, right? The intangible part of us from the physical, tangible part of us. And really, when we talk about death throughout the Bible, there are multiple kinds that we really have to put in to focus. Because at the heart of it, death is simply describing a separation of two things, right? Physical death, soul, body. Spiritual death, God separated from man. Even within our relationships <clears throat> in Genesis 2, you had this perfect union, a husband and wife, really as a type of the perfect community and harmony we have with each other. Now suddenly there's a separation. Now there's uh, division. There's hatred. There's strife between people. Really even within ourselves, we see a separation of us even from our own self. And you get some mental health issues out of that. We get depression, anxiety, all those things affecting the inward part of us. And so throughout our world, what we see is the effects of sin and death really breaking down and separating all the things that God had built up and put in order in Genesis 1 and 2. And so even though Adam, in one instance, one action, committed this infraction against the Lord, what we see in Romans 5 is this has an effect on all of us forever. That because of Adam's sin, all of us have sinned because that sin and because that death has spread to all people. And so that's the main point of this first section right here. Because of Adam's sin, death holds power over all of us. It's inescapable. We can't get out of it without the intervention of God. It kind of reminds me of during COVID, during this pandemic, uh, I don't know if you were tracking it in the news like actively, but I went back and looked on the CDC's website to just kind of jog my memory, uh, and I was going through the timeline, and it was, it's, uh, you probably remember this, but it was amazing, it was crazy how fast it would spread, right? It started in China in December, mid-December. Uh, we know that it was definitely here in the United States by March, ruined a lot of your spring break, break plans, really shut you in your house for a considerable amount of time. But as each pandemic is tracked by the World Health Organization, the CDC, whatever it is, uh, they always are looking for patient zero. Where did this actually start? With who did this actually begin? And they were never able to actually track it back to one specific individual COVID. They were just able to say, hey, it actually started at this seafood market in Wuhan, China. Uh, we don't know who. We don't know who did it. We know it was there, but not who. 
Here in Romans 5, though, what we see is this spiritual pandemic where we have patient zero starting with Adam and the transmission rate is 100%. We saw COVID, crazy transmission rate, very contagious. But what Paul is saying here is that Adam's sin passed down to each and every one of us. No one escapes it. No one starts off sinless. We are all born in sin and live in sin. In fact, there are really two ways to think about sin in your own life from a theological perspective. The one you know really well. That's your own personal sin. The things that you've done wrong, the things you can point to and say, this is how I've gone against God's will. These are the rules I've broken. This is the, the scripture I've gone against. You can point to those sin patterns, whatever they are, and say, yeah, I know, I'm a sinful person. But on the other hand, there's your uh, sin nature, which is what Romans 5 is getting into. This sin nature that was passed down to each and every one of us from Adam. We inherited it from him. And because of that sin nature, we cannot help but choose sin again and again against a decision to choose and follow God. So we're stuck in sin. We're stuck in death. And we understand that this uh, sin nature within us gives us an overwhelming predisposition to the sin in our life, we choose it again and again, leading us further and further into death. And we know this because we see it all over the place. In fact, we see it, I know I see it, in uh, the lives of uh, little kids, right? My, my niece and nephew, you know, you, you're seeing them act up, you're seeing them be disobedient. But we all know, right, we've, we have a struggle, we have a problem, even with human authority in our life, like these two toddlers here. Look at me. You can have free sex, but you can't have them... Um right now okay you gotta wait you gotta wait until mommy and daddy come back okay you can't eat these yet you gotta wait until we come back i'm gonna leave them right here don't touch them wait okay we're gonna come back don't eat them yet don't eat them we'll be right back we just gotta go get something just go, just wait a second Love it. <laughs> what is clear in this video is a few things. First off is that the law was given, right? The rules were established. The dad is saying it over and over and over. He's being absolutely clear. This is the rule. Do not eat these until we get back. And they're like, we get it. Okay, we understand. There's a law being left. And then the authority figures leave. The parental units are gone out of the room. And then you see in their mind the wheels of disobedience start to churn and spin. And they look down at the fruit stacks and they think there's a chance for us to break these rules. And then uh, the best part of the video, they look at each other and they're like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this together. We're breaking these rules together because we're twins and we're evil like that. And so they 
jump into disobedience together, and then they're dancing in it. And on one hand, we get it, because we've all been there, and we understand the allure of fruit snacks. We still do, right? They're irresistible in a lot of ways. Uh, And in this moment, we relate because we can understand there's an irresistibility to the breaking and shattering of authority and rules over us that we disagree with, that we don't want to live by. And within that, we see also, if we extend that further, that when each, within each of us, there is a selfishness, there's a self-gratification that we are yearning for, looking for. And if any rule gets in our way, we're willing to kind of break that to, to get what we want. And I think that aligns with what Paul is saying in Romans 5, the sin nature that is presented or within you presents you with choices that seem or are irresistible. And when you decide to follow those decisions, when you decide to follow that sin nature, it leads you into more and more death. And then in Romans 5, 13, 14, uh, it gets a little confusing, but Paul is saying, hey, uh, with Moses, God gave this law. And when God gave you the law, you were able to look at all these commandments, 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Uh, you can see in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's a long list uh, and as, as we engage with this, these laws that God has given Israel to keep and to live by and to interact with the holy God and be his holy people, they were able to say, oh, no, we broke, uh, we broke all of them. All of them are broken. We did, we did all the bad things. They're able to look at that list and compare their actions to the commands specifically prohibiting them. But he says, hey, even before that, even before that law was given, you knew sin was in you because The penalty for sin is death, and people were dying. We understand the effects of sin, the devastation of sin, because the penalty is death, and people were dying. And so Paul, why why does Paul bring any of this up? What is his point? Where is he headed? Well, once again, as I mentioned in the beginning, he's talking about the history of God's redemption. And so when you talk about redemption, you have to start with the bad news, the problem, the obstacle. And here, it is the sin of all humanity. Big problem. But as he continues on, he's going to talk and interact with the overwhelming magnitude and power of the grace of God playing out in human history. And so in verse 15, he starts it this way. He says and compares, but the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if the many died through the transgression of the one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to many? And right here, what Paul is doing, he's comparing Jesus to Adam. You saw earlier, Adam's sin led to death for all. Here he's going to begin this thought that Jesus, and through the grace of God to send Jesus as a sacrifice for the sin, reverses the penalty of death, and we and all who believe in Christ are given life. Or said a different way, what Jesus gives us reverses what Adam did to us. And right here, Paul is introducing the idea of representation. And we get this because we live in a a democracy where we elect uh, representatives to go vote on our behalf, right? We cast our votes for them. They cast their votes on behalf of our needs and our interests, at least theoretically, right? Uh, But we also understand this because most of us in this room are Aggies. And uh, towards the end of your experience at A&M, you have the option to buy 
a gold ring on which you wear in your right hand. A lot of you are staring at it right now. It's so shiny, you can't resist it. It's like five pounds and it's heavy. And as you go out into this world, people are going to ask you, why are you wearing an obnoxiously large gold ring on your right hand? And you're going to say, well, there's a spirit that can never be told of a school they think so grand. And the tear will form in your eye as you remember your entire experience at A&M and the glory and the majesty of our football team and other teams that are doing so well. And uh, you'll cry with excitement in a lot of ways. And people are, are going to be like, why are you crying? And you, you say, you don't understand the spirit of Aggieland. And, and they're going to be like, but I want to. And you're like, come with me. And you bring him to a game and you introduce him to all your friends at the tailgate. And they're all going to think, wow, these people are so nice. They're the nicest people in the world. And then they're going to transfer to A&M because they're convinced that this is the place to be. And that's what happens when we go out into this world, right? We have the representation, not only just of our university, but we have the representation of our family, of, uh, of our organization, of our uh, job, your career, whatever it is. You as a person can and do represent so much more than yourself. You represent all the things you're a part of. And that representation has an effect on what people think about what you're a part of. So if you go as an Aggie to, uh, I don't know, uh, Dallas to a a game against Arkansas and you get in a fight with some Razorbacks, then they're going to be like, man, those Aggies, they love to fight. They're really, uh, gosh, they're really good at fighting. Um, And it it can introduce these ideas uh, of what we are because of the actions of one individual. And so that's what Paul is getting at here with Adam and Jesus. But his point is the representation of both the man Adam and his sin and the death caused through him versus Jesus and grace and life. He's saying these two individuals represent all people in some way. And the challenge within this passage is going to be Which man do you identify with? Do you identify with the sin of Adam or do you identify with the grace of Jesus Christ? And the decision is an important one because the eternal destiny of each and every person is how you are related to one of those people. It kind of reminds me of of, of the solar eclipse last yesterday, during the middle of the day. I don't know, did you guys watch it? Did you see it? Did you stare at it? Did it hurt your eyes? People have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, there was a solar eclipse yesterday. Uh, it doesn't happen every day. It's kind of rare. So um, you'll get it. We'll get it like in like 300 years. We'll be fine. We'll see it again. Um, so, but it reminded me looking at the sun, staring at the sun, which we're not supposed to do, but we were all doing it, is it's funny how often we kind of just We don't really think about its effect in our life. We don't really think about uh, the fact that it's up there, it's it's shining, it's it's doing uh, a lot for us, it's growing a lot of food for us, it's giving us heat, giving us light. Really, we just kind of see it as this orange dot in the sky. We kind of drive through it. Sometimes that orange dot is too hot for us and we get mad at it. Sometimes that orange dot in the sky, it looks prettier than usual because it's reflecting light off the clouds and we think, I'll take a picture of that and show it to somebody one day, and as we think about this orange dot in the sky, what can be challenging to think of is its size relative to everything else, right? Because we live as one individual, one human body on this 
massive planet. Even planet Earth is pretty large. We get this because we've tried to drive across Texas, and it took all day. We're like, man, how big is the world? Oh, so big. Uh, and I'm standing on it, and it just kind of overwhelms me. But when we put even the size of this planet into perspective with the sun, we get something much, 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 much larger than the perspective we usually see. As you can see, the Earth and its size on the uh, the third little orb sphere on the left bottom side compared to the relative size of the sun itself. And the reason why I even tell you all this is I think that in our experience of God's grace versus the devastation of our own sin, we can tend to get caught up in the, uh, the current state of where we are. Uh, we understand the, the size of and magnitude of our sin is great, and we feel guilty. We feel shame. We feel pressure to be better. We feel pressure to be a better Christian or, or look better or appear better. Meanwhile, we, we, or we, and, and at the same time, we make all of this seem very large. But the grace of God and the gospel of God in proclaiming this grace is essentially saying, yes, your sin is a problem, but the grace of God is so much bigger in comparison to your sin that it has the power to wipe out any infraction, any sin, any, anything you've done wrong, and you're, nothing of, of that sort will be counted against you in the eyes of God. And that's what Romans 5, really, the main point is, he's going to say and use this phrase, how much more then is the grace of God uh, more powerful in magnitude than your sin? Just as the sun is more powerful in magnitude and size and dimension than even the planet we live on currently. But just like the sun, I think our tendency is to forget, downplay, or get desensitized to the presence of God's grace and that is working and active in our life. And so the main point here that I skipped over earlier is what he's saying is by the representation of these two guys, you see Adam's sin, the effect is we are all enslaved to sin and led into death. But through Jesus, grace is given to all and it leads to life. And like I said earlier, your eternal destiny, where you end up after this life, depends on which person you're identified with. And his point here throughout Romans 5 is leading us into a greater understanding and appreciation, a widening perspective of the power of God's grace, working not only in your life, but in the life of every single person across history. That even though Adam's sin infected and destroyed and caused death for so many people, the grace of God through Jesus that's offered to each and every person has the power to transform and bring sinners, bring dead people back to life, back into relationship with God, and back into their designed purpose, which is to know and love their creator and how amazing that is. So here the emphasis is on the impact the effect of that grace working across human history just like the son as we continue in romans 16 he says this and the gift is not like the one who sinned for judgment resulting from the one transgression led to condemnation but the gracious gift from the many failures led to justification 
For if by the transgression of the one man, death reigned through the one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So here he's on the same topic, slightly different point. His point here now is on the legal consequence for which man you decide to be aligned with, which man you are associating your destiny with. And he's saying if you are with Adam, then because of Adam's transgression and the judgment that's following that, all are condemned. Every single person that has sinned is condemned under God's law, and because he is a holy and just God, he cannot allow allow sin to go without punishment and judgment, and we all are condemned before his presence. But the gospel is that through faith in Jesus, all are justified. And I don't want you to get tripped up over that word justified. We have a tendency to overplay these big words and, and make them too complicated. The word justification, the word justify, simply is a legal term that's uh, describing us being made right with God. That's what it means. To be made right with God. It's a relational legal term that we are all now in a right relationship with God, just as someone who is declared innocent is in, a relate, is in a right relationship with the government, with authority. But his point with Adam is essentially saying, look, uh, well, think about it this way. You, if you were a kid that ever played with dominoes or any kind of like building blocks, there might have been a time where you took those dominoes and you stood them end over end and you lined them all up in a line and maybe had them go down and up mountains or whatever. And at one point you're like, that's enough. That took 15 hours. I'm ready to see this in action. And then you tip that first one over. And in a moment, everything's quiet. Everything's silent. And then it hits that second domino. And that one hits the third and the fourth, and suddenly it's speeding to the end, and then it it finally crashes with the whole structure kind of coming down at the very end. And in this blink of an eye, really everything is impacted because of the initial action, because of that first domino hitting the other one, that they all fall down. And that's what is happening here in Romans 5. Because of Adam's transgression, that first domino that was pushed, that first action that happened, all of us are fallen. All of us are condemned. There is no getting out of the path of sin and death. You have fallen, and you are without hope unless, unless you find faith in Jesus. Then, and only then, does Jesus reverse what Adam did to us and give us life. And when we talk about life here in Romans 5, once again, remember, we're talking about the broad strokes of human history. We're talking about God's redemption throughout all people's lives. Here, he's talking about eternal life, which for some people get confused. Once again, they think, okay, eternal life, that's got to start when I'm in heaven or something. No, eternal life starts the minute you place your faith in Jesus. That's when it starts. You are given eternal life, and the main benefit of eternal life is knowing God. Being in a relationship with your, with your creator, that's the benefit of eternal life. That's the point of eternal life. And because we are justified, we're brought into that relationship, and we experience the things that God intended for us. Grace, peace, love, joy, hope, all of those things that give our lives meaning, that give our lives direction, that in the midst of the darkest moments, 
struggles, the difficulties, the problems, we cling to the hope that God has something better for us. And he says, through Jesus, you will reign in life, which means that you will experience all that God has designed for you. But it is a gift that must be received, that in the grand scheme of all humanity, God is offering his grace to all people. God doesn't offer it to individuals and say, I'd kind of like you more, here's some grace. Instead, he offers it to all, but those who receive that gift are the ones that are justified. That's why faith plays such an important part in this. Though the gift is offered, it's only those who believe, who receive that gift that are changed forever. Everyone else is still in sin and death because they reject or do not believe that this gospel is offered through Christ and Christ alone. So that's his point there. As we kind of wrap up Romans, he'll make a similar point, saying, consequently, just as condemnation for all people came through one transgression, so through, so too through the one righteous act came righteousness leading to life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in so that the transgression may increase, but where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And right here, this last bit, as we close out today, this last point, and if you've been reading this, you're probably thinking, man, Paul's starting to sound really redundant. Like, it sounds like he's saying the same thing with different words each time. Well, his point is slightly different each time, and here, it's based on the identity of who believes and who does not believe. Those that associate with Adam, their identity is sinners. Their sin nature hasn't completely captured, and they are dominated by death to the end. Whereas those who believe in Christ, they are, their identity is now righteous. They are called righteous, meaning they're right with God, and their identity and experience of God is transformed through that grace, which is much more powerful than the sin. And through that grace, they reign to eternal life. Now, to make this way more simple, just to put it in summary, if you're just like, I'm completely lost here, just give me like two sentences. Uh, here you go. The main point of Romans 5 this, that we've been talking about today is that sin and death hold power over humanity. Un- inescapable. We can't get away from that. But God gives Jesus Christ this gift of grace who will f- that will free any who receive it. The sin of power is great. The power of The power of sin is great. The power of grace is even greater. And that's his main point. Though our sins are great, God's grace is even greater. And that's the beauty of the gospel that we see here in Romans 5. And so if you're keeping track with us in summary, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are justified with God. You're made right with him. You are reconciled to him because Christ's death and resurrection covers over your sin and brings you into a relationship with God, which is eternal life with him, in which we are able to love and be loved by him forever. And so like I said at the beginning, this passage, really intense theological points, really intense discourse, really confusing. 
what am I supposed to do with this? How do I live my life based off Romans 5? Well, my encouragement today is as you think about the power of God's grace working in your life, that you'd spend time this week, maybe even today, reflecting on how that grace has transformed you. A lot of times I'll think back to my life and think, man, what if, I, what if I never became a believer? What if I did all the things, I went to college, high school, whatever it is, went to the workforce and never knew the grace of God? How would that affect my life? How would that have changed my life? And the purpose of that question is to notice the, the big difference. If your answer is, well, it probably didn't change much, then that's a clue to you that this grace of God that is present and active in your life is not actually transforming the way you live. And as we read Romans, what he's saying is, hey, the grace of God, when it is in power and moving in your life, is going to radically reorient your priorities and your values, the things you consider important, the direction you're going in life, uh, the career decisions, the person you're going to marry, your friends, where you spend your time, the the way you spend money, the way you're going to retire. Everything is oriented according to the gospel of Jesus. And that grace that has impacted you so powerfully will begin to showcase itself through the way you make those decisions. Think about it this way. Uh, Whenever you want to pick a a good restaurant or you want to see if a a location or a service does uh, good food or has good service, does whatever, what do you do? You get on Google, you get on Yelp. You look up the review, you look through the long list of the five stars and the one stars, and you're seeing what are people saying about this. Can I trust them? Can I trust Jimmy with his food preferences? Can I trust Stacy with her fashion decisions? And you're reading through the testimony of every single person in order to make a decision. Should I go eat there? Should I go shop there? Should I go uh, vacation there? Well, all of us, all of you are a testimony to God's grace. That when people look at your life and your life and your life, they see working through your words and actions, your decisions, the way you treat people, the way you speak to people, the way you love people. They see through you how great God is. And when our lives don't look any different from the lives around us, what kind of testimony is that? What kind of review is that for the power of God working in our life? Not great. The point here isn't to shame anyone, but kind of to to wake us up to maybe the things we've taken for granted, the things we don't often think about, that God has called us into a relationship with himself in which we get to participate in his mission to change this world for his glory and his grace. In fact, most of the New Testament is written by this God, the Apostle Paul, who in his early life, known by Saul, was a Pharisee. He was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. He was making sure the gospel of Jesus was not going to anyone ever as he destroyed churches, as he was going to destroy another church. Jesus met him on the road in Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he suddenly believes his life is transformed by the grace of God. It radically reorients his life to the gospel. And then suddenly he's traveling around the Roman Empire starting to share the gospel in cities he's never been to, uh, with with people he's never met, uh, sacrificing his body in in terms of he's being physically beaten in some ways. He's being shipwrecked. He's enduring suffering. Why? Why do any of that? 
Because he understands what's at stake. And his life is radically reoriented by the grace of God to be focused on what is important. And so as the band comes up, we're going to sing one more song. And as they uh, lead us in this song, what I want you to do as you, as you start this week off, and hopefully you create some time this week to, to get alone, whether that's you know, in the morning with your cup of coffee or at night uh, brushing your teeth or maybe driving your car, whatever you whatever you'd spend time alone. What I want you to think of is, is how was the grace of God showcasing itself in my life? How do people see the glory of God playing out through the way that I live and the way that I move and the way that I treat people? So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to give you a few seconds to begin that reflection, begin to think through that. And uh, after that, the band will lead us in the song. So pray with me. Father God, we're thankful for... Once again, your word and your truth, that, that through it we understand the gospel, we understand what Jesus has done for us, that we were caught in sin, but because of your grace, we're free. We know life, and we thank you so much. We pray that as we continue to reflect on your grace, God, that your Holy Spirit would stir our affections for you and your gospel that we think about what's really important, what we really value in life, and give it all to Jesus. Give it all to you, because you alone are worthy.